Hello, and welcome to this episode of Seekers and Scholars. My name is Krista Seidgram, and I am the producer of the Seekers and Scholars podcast. So normally, I'm playing a behind-the-scenes support role, but today I have the pleasure of being on the microphone myself as the host of this episode. And the reason for this is that Jonathan Eder, who is our usual host, is actually with us today as a guest. He's in the studio with me here. Hi, Jonathan. How does it feel to be on the other side of the room, uh, metaphorically and literally? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it feels good so far. And we are also joined by another very special guest, uh, Dr. Jill Zonizer. And Jill is joining us from St. Paul, Minnesota. So hi, Jill. How are you? How's St. Paul this morning? Well, St. Paul is, is in the winter, but, but we're getting warmer. So we talk here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library about Seekers and Scholars as a way to celebrate the spirit of inquiry that connects Mary Baker Eddy's life, her writings, and her ideas to a wide variety of fields. Today, we're going to look specifically at the field of women's rights and the history of women's rights activism and how it overlaps with the history of Christian science— and we're going to look at a very interesting slice of this history, starting with the work of Christian scientist women who were actively involved in the work of the National Women's Party, founded by one Alice Paul. Now, Alice Paul's name is probably very well known to some of our listeners and possibly not at all known to others. But in short, she was a critical historical figure in the battle for women's suffrage in the United States— leading up to the passage of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1920, which granted women the right to vote. And her work for women's rights continued on well into the 20th century, which we will get into a little bit more in this episode. But before we go too much farther, let me tell you just a little bit more about our two guests. Jonathan is the manager of programs and scholarly engagement for the Mary Baker Eddy Library, and regular listeners know him as the host of this podcast Jonathan has been with the library since it opened in 2002, and he has continued in many capacities over the years, much of his work contributing to the storytelling of what's available in the library's collections. Jonathan wrote an article for the library's Women in History series on Helen Paul, who was a Christian scientist and women's rights activist and sister of Alice Paul. He also contributed a chapter about Mary Burton Messer, who is a sociologist and women's rights activist, also a Christian scientist to Volume 2 of the Women in Religion series by Atla Open Press, and the book is called Challenging Bias Against Women Academics in Religion. So, Jonathan, we're glad to have you here wearing your scholarly engagement hat. <laughs> yeah, it almost fits. It just about fits. <laughs> it will fit even better after today's episode. Okay. And a little bit about uh, Jill. So, Dr. Zonheiser is an independent scholar and co-author of the book Alice Paul Claiming Power. So, she comes to us as an expert on the life of Alice Paul, among other things. You can see Jill in the PBS American Experience special, The Vote, which aired in 2020 for the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment. And you can find Jill's writings on Alice Paul and other notable figures under the pen name J.D. Zonizer, including in the American History magazine. And Jill, following on her early career as a teacher, has worked with the American Institute for History Education to further the inclusion of women's history in school curricula across the United States. So we are very glad that you're here, Jill. Thank you, Krista. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted that we're doing this and, and always pleased when people have an interest in the life of Alice Paul. She's kind of a forgotten figure because although she was really key in women getting the vote in the last 10 years of that very, very long campaign, she was also rather controversial. 
uh, not only in her campaign to get the vote, but also after that. She had a way of doing what she wanted to do, and not everybody liked it. So for many years was rather put to the side. Now, during the episode, we're going to hear a couple of short samples of Alice Paul's own voice. This was from a series of oral history interviews that she gave to Amelia Fry, who was the co-author of Alice Paul Claiming Power, along with you, Jill. And these recordings were part of a larger oral history project on women suffragists that was done in the 1970s by the University of California in Berkeley. This is at the very end of Alice Paul's career. Today, this oral history is known as Conversations with Alice Paul, and it's very mm-hmm. much that. I like that. That's awesome. So the genesis of this episode, why we originally thought about doing it, it started with you, Jonathan, writing this paper that was presented as part of a panel at this year's American Society of Church History Conference, which was in Philadelphia back in January. And you wrote this paper entitled Quakerism and Christian Science in Alice Paul's Women's Rights Activism. Introduce us to this paper that you wrote. Why did you become interested in this topic? What did you find? So um, the paper was part of a panel called Holy Experiments in the Arts, Politics, and Alternative Communities in Greater Philadelphia. Holy Experiments refers to William Penn, the founder of the Pennsylvania Colony, um, which he established to be a holy experiment in religious tolerance, or at least that's how the, the story goes. And that's very much at the origins of of Pennsylvania. And so the Paul family very much figures into that history. I mean, they go back right to the origins of Philadelphia, of Pennsylvania, as, as really a Quaker stronghold. William Penn himself was a Quaker. Um, it was interesting to me, though, to discover that two of the three siblings of Alice Paul converted to Christian science, her younger sister, Helen, and her youngest brother, Perry. So I wanted to explore that further and to get more of an understanding of that relationship between the family and Christian science. And what then surfaced was how many Christian scientists had been involved with Alice Paul in her various political initiatives uh, with the National Women's Party and then later with another organization that she founded called the World Women's Party and discovered there was a really rich history there of many Christian scientists, women involved with uh, Alice Paul's work. And then I think what interested me most for this paper was to really explore Alice Paul's perspective on Christian science and on these Christian scientists, women. What comes out in the documentation that I found, and particularly in this oral history that was conducted with Alice Paul by Amelia Fry was how often she calls out the Christian science influence that's going on in this work. She doesn't really do that with any other religion. She talks about Quakerism in terms of herself, but otherwise Christian science is something that seems to be very alive in her mind. And for us at the Mary Baker Library, I think that is of significance because we see our collections as contributing a lot to that subject of the history of women in their pursuit of greater rights, greater freedoms, the potential to have greater contribution uh, for humanity as a whole. So, yes, it's a very natural topic for the Mary Baker Eddy Library to be exploring. Mary Baker Eddy addresses the subject of women's rights in her writings, and uh, it's been difficult, I think, for scholars to kind of pinpoint how to identify Mary Baker Eddy as, as a feminist. 
particularly in terms of political activism. But it's clear that Mary Baker Eddy saw the advancement of women's rights as a critical piece in what was necessary for humanity's overall progress and salvation. Mm-hmm. Jill, as I, I mentioned, it seems that people either have never heard Alice Paul's name or they do know about her and they're very aware of how important she was to the women's rights movement. So for our listeners who might be in that former camp, can you introduce us to her a little bit? I'd be happy to do that. Alice Paul was born uh, in New Jersey in a town called Moorestown, which is uh, just to the southeast of Philadelphia. She was born into an upper-middle-class Quaker family, a family that had generations of uh, Quaker practice and, and also prominence within that area. As Jonathan mentioned, what they called the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of Friends Uh, was very prominent in uh, the Quaker religion. Because Quakers believe that women should be educated, Alice Paul had the benefit of being educated from kindergarten through college and ended up uh, even going to graduate school in Great Britain. While she was in Great Britain, she uh, got interested in and ultimately got involved in the radical end of the British suffrage movement, which was led by Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, and ended up joining them in uh, picketing parliament, in interrupting political meetings. And uh, she, like many of the others involved, were ultimately arrested, jailed, uh, imprisoned, and force-fed when they were fasting out of protest at the way they were being treated. Because of the health problems she acquired in those radical activities, she ended up returning to America before she really wanted to in 1910, but returning as a celebrity Uh, in terms of the suffrage movement. So she became involved with the American suffrage movement and frustrated with the slow pace of that movement, talked the leaders of that into sending her to Washington to work on Congress for uh, an amendment granting women the right to vote. Uh, She ended up going off on her own when she became too assertive in the movement. She became rather controversial and was a key person in gaining that Uh, women's right to vote in 1920. She continued after 1920, unlike most people involved with the suffrage movement, and ended up authoring the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, in 1923, and continued, albeit with a much smaller crew, really through the end of her life to 1977. Uh, She thought uh, at the time that she died in July 1977 that the ERA would be passed. There was one state to go, And she would be disappointed today to know that we're still waiting on that. She was the only leader of the original suffrage movement to survive till we see feminism reviving in the 1960s and 1970s. She died in 1977, uh, having carried the ERA into a new generation and letting a new generation put that forward. Of course, now we're, we're sort of holding our breath to see whether we're going to see the ERA in our lifetimes now. Yeah, that is a fascinating part about her life because she spans just a, a wide number of years. I think people often know the names of the early suffragists uh, that didn't actually live to see the amendment pass. They know maybe Susan B. Anthony. They know Elizabeth Cady Stanton, possibly Lucretia Mott, people who actually didn't see that enacted in their lifetimes, but then Alice Paul is part of this second wave that carries it across the finish line. Exactly. Yes, exactly right. Jonathan, so just going back to what you have in your paper, this observation in the oral history transcripts, these conversations with Alice Paul of how often she singles out Christian science. What do we know about 
why that would have come up so often for her. Is it just because she had these family members and these ties? Well, it's a good question. And I do think that she feels a confidence about talking about Christian science because she has this relationship with her sister and brother and with her sister-in-law, Jean Daggett-Paul, who had married her brother, Perry. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that Jean Daggett-Paul had a very long career as a Christian science practitioner and teacher. The women Christian scientists that we encounter who are in her movement, she does seem to be very aware (laughs) of the (laughs) religious uh, orientation of, of these women and very aware of how their practice of Christian science has this influence with her political cause and her um, her political initiatives. You know, we should mention the fact that Alice Paul had her own direct experience with Christian science mm-hmm. during a very difficult period for her in 1917. While uh, picketing was going on in the middle of, of World War One, real key time for the National Women's Party. And she had had physical issues, issues of sickness, uh, ever since she had been in a prison in Britain and, as I mentioned, was fasted, was force-fed, and ultimately left the movement there because of the health issues that resulted from that. And she wasn't the only one that, that experienced you know, years of difficult health issues because of that force-feeding. But in 1917, or in the midst of this, this picketing campaign, she suddenly collapses and uh, no one can figure out what's wrong with her. She's taken to a hospital and diagnosed with essentially a terminal illness because of someone involved, a key a person in, in the National Women's Party who was her friend, uh, who had a brother who was an eminent physician, ends up in Baltimore with him, and unclear exactly how he diagnosed her, but said that the terminal illness was false. And essentially, it tells her to rest for two months, which was something she was unlikely to do. But she comes home and and rests, and I think through Helen's influence, ends up going to a Christian science practitioner, a healer in Philadelphia who was well-known for some help with this health issue, uh, largely involving digestive problems, as I understand it. But this was helpful enough to her that she returned to Washington after a few weeks and continued with the campaign and and stayed there until the vote was won. So she had her own direct impact from the influence of Christian science beyond just knowing how her sister and ultimately her brother were involved with it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's wonderful to hear that story. Jill, do you know what Alice's own connection to faith was? She has this upbringing as a Quaker. Does she stay pretty tied to that faith? She's tied to it, and she is not tied to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, we have the long family history uh, in Morristown and elsewhere, you know, within the Friends. And I think she had uh, a lot of respect for that family history. I think that she appreciated, she realized that she had been educated where many women, you know, fought to be educated at the level that, that she had gained education. I think she appreciated the, the value of equality. But at the same time, as she is entering, getting involved in the suffrage movement, there is a time when she goes to a, a meeting of young friends who are kind of debating whether they should be involved in the social issues of the day in the first decade of the the 20th century. And she urges them to move into the fray, to, to get involved in social problems and bring their 
religious values into public existence. Quakers had kind of shied away from this kind of thing for a couple generations. And so this was seen as a step too far in uh, certainly the minds of many elders, but also some of the younger people, people of her generation. So uh, she pushed back against Quakerism in that way and moved herself certainly into the world of the suffrage movement. Uh, So I think in terms of the way that she looked at Christian science, I have to think that her own experience would give her some respect about the way that Christian scientists were okay with moving into the push for women's equality. That feels like a really natural tie, Jonathan, to talking about some of the stories of the women that you wrote about in your paper. They're wonderful stories of these Christian scientist women. The stories that I called out in my paper refer to a woman named Sarah Pell and then to another woman named Mary Owens. I think I'll read a little bit from the paper, and I'll be citing Alice Paul from her oral history interview with Amelia Fry. And then also we'll sample a little bit from the audio tape of this as well. So this is Alice Paul talking about Sarah Gibbs Thompson Pell when she was chairman of the National Women's Party for a period of time. And I'll say chairman because that's the language they used. It's not something we would say today about a woman who is in that position right. of, of, of authority, but that's, that's the expression they used then. So Alice Paul says about Mrs. Pell, uh, she was very good. And then she explains about the religious significance of Pell in her work for the National Women's Party. So let's hear the audio clip. And this is Alice talking about Mrs. Pell. Any person who's really an ardent Christian scientist always enrolls in a church, in one of these classes. And then they give them some kind of recognition as having taken this, been a student with an accredited teacher. Well, Mrs. Pell was an extremely devout Christian scientist and um, very, very, very devout Christian scientist. And so she had a teacher she enrolled in one of these classes, and his name was Mr. Heitman. And she made him thoroughly aware of the woman party and um, went to him when we asked her to be national chairman. She told me all this herself. And uh, she said she wouldn't become national chairman unless she thought it was the, uh, the right thing for her to do. And he, he uh, looked into the whole matter, and he strongly urged her to do it. <laughs> I, I think it's wonderful to hear that recollection. It, it seems very present in her mind as if uh, mm-hmm. she's right back at that moment with Mrs. Pell. But also, you know, it really shows some insight into what Christian science life uh, can be about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's not just aware of this thing in passing. She's got some connection. It, it obviously was meaningful to her. And her understanding of the significance of what's called class instruction in Christian science. Mm-hmm. That, that is something that people who are uh, very interested in Christian science and deepening their understanding have the opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. And you see this over and over again in the oral history and in other documentation related to Alice Paul, that she really does understand what goes on in the faith. Yeah, and so, you know, this story about Sarah Pell goes on to have significance for Alice Paul because she learns then about 
Heitman, her Christian science teacher's influence in helping to get an editorial written in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment by the Christian Science Monitor. And it's interesting to see in her oral history, as well as in the papers of the National Women's Party that are at the Library of Congress, how often she is in contact with the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, She views the Monitor not only as an ally to women's rights, but also as one of the more important newspapers of the time in terms of influence. So she says in this oral history at one point that in the 1940s, she feels, you know, no newspaper, uh, major newspaper, has come out in favor with any kind of editorial uh, in favor of the ERA. So she goes to the Monitor offices and makes the case and discovers the Monitor is, is quite sympathetic. And then Mr. Heitman, who's the teacher of Sarah Pell, is also coincidentally at the time on the board of directors of the Christian Science Church. And so Erwin Canham, who's editor of the Christian Science Monitor at the time, makes a pitch to the board of directors to come out with an editorial in favor of the ERA. So let's hear a little from Alice about how it was that the Christian Science Monitor came out with an editorial in favor of the ERA. And as part of this uh, moment from the audio clip, we'll hear a little of the interviewer, Amelia Fry. And he said, well, I'll just write up to Mr. Cannon, the editor. And uh, you know who Mr. Edward Cannon was, I guess, of the editor. The Christian oh, was he the Who? Oh, Cannon. C-A-N, yeah. Cannon. So he said, I'll write to Mr. Cannon. He called me up and said, you know, I find Mr. Cannon even more enthusiastic about this than I am. And he says, you'll take it up with the National uh, Board, and they will decide whether or not the monitor should come out for this. And it's no use for you going up because Mr. Pat Cannon was going to present it to them himself, and he said, I think that's the best thing to do. So then he telephoned again and said, Mr. Cannon says that he presented it to the board, and he found on the board one of the most influential members of the board was a Mr. Heitman, and that Mr. Heitman said, well, I will propose this and get the endorsement of the Christian Science Board. And so he said, then he called me again, he said, Mr. Heitman's presented it. He's gotten the National Board of Governors, or whatever they call it in that church. Mm-hmm. Trustees, Board of Trustees, maybe. But anyway, they called it something or other. And it's the governing board, and they have voted upon Mr. Heitman's recommendation unanimously to support the Equal Rights Amendment. Well, it was very difficult to get people to sign on uh, to the ERA until till about the 1940s. And then there began to be some traction. And even late in the 1940s, they almost managed to pass the amendment. But before that time, it was very difficult to get uh, something like the, the Business and Professional Women's Clubs, the YWCA, organizations like that, that they wanted in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. Very difficult to get them on board. And after the late 1940s, it began difficult again uh, for another 20 years. So we did have other issues they were working on, but the campaign for the ERA was really long, dragged out, and very difficult for the first 20 years. It's notable how the Monitor endorses the ERA. This is from October 30th, 1943, and this is a, a quote from their editorial. As the situation has developed, it appears to us that today 
the certain gains from an equal rights amendment outweigh the possible losses. Basically, women's rights will still depend less on the law than on the thinking of herself and her brothers. But setting up a clear constitutional support of the spiritual fact that men and women are created equal will raise a standard by which the thought and action of humanity will be uplifted. Yeah, and that's a good phrase, the constitutional support. All men were created equal is not in the Constitution, but it is the support for many of the laws that have been created after the Declaration of Independence. And the Equal Rights Amendment would serve as that kind of support as well. And Jonathan, I know in your paper you have you have other stories. You have uh, you mentioned <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned a woman named Mary Owens. Um, can you tell us a little bit about her and her just her connection to all of this? Well, she's from North Dakota, and she is chairman of the National Women's Party for that region of the country. And this is occurring during a time of real tension within the party itself. There's a dissenting group that's very unhappy with the direction of the party very unhappy with how funds within the party are being used. Um, A major benefactor for uh, the National Women's Party was a woman named Alva Belmont. And the headquarters of the National Women's Party are in the Alva Belmont house. And so at a certain juncture, this dissenting group really uh, tries what is thought of as a coup d'etat to come in and sort of take over the party itself in its headquarters. And this coincides with when... Uh, Mary Owens freshly arrives on the scene. And, what's, our, uh, what's our dates for this again? When is this happening? About 1946, 47 in there. Uh, so imagine that scene. I imagine, Jill, a kind of palatial, handsome building that Alva Belmont yes. would, have, would have had. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this dissenting group comes in, and they want to take over. And this is how Alice Paul remembers that incident and uh, Mary Owens' role in it. She says the following in the oral history, quote, My goodness, a most wonderful woman. But we would never have discovered what wonderful woman we had if we hadn't had this experience. She, meaning Mary Owens, was a very devout Christian scientist. So she started to read in a loud voice that she hoped would go over the whole building, the 91st Psalm. And she read the 91st Psalm repeatedly, over and over with great eloquence and great feeling and with great complete belief that the 91st Psalm was going to be all that was necessary to meet this extraordinary situation she'd come to. And then she goes on a little bit later, quote, you know, most people who'd come way out from North Dakota and who'd never been there before, and they'd found people coming in and holding a meeting to ask us to vacate. You know, most people who had never had any personal contact with us and we hadn't with Mrs. Owens, I think would have sort of stepped aside. But not Mrs. Owens. She just thought, well, now I've been placed by heaven, I guess, right here in the midst of this thing to straighten it out. So she began on the night of her psalm, and she kept it up until, I think, two in the morning, always. You know, it's kind of an extraordinary thing to imagine but, you know, he, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, is how the 91st Psalm begins. It's really addressing um, very specifically. It sounds a bit strange when you first think about it, but when you actually go into the lines of the 91st Psalm, thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, they immediately kind of address the situation 
at hand in terms of there being protection when in a state of crisis. It's such a beautiful story. Someone really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me anyway, it's, it's gorgeous just hearing about how she brought her faith in an incredibly public, vulnerable way to that situation. I think mm-hmm. that's just very yeah. cool to hear about. Uh, there was a real standoff in the night that you're referring to when Mary Owens came in. It was a real kind of crazy night in this three-floor mansion that was then called the Sewell Belmont House, which is right on Capitol Hill, uh, just across the street, really, from the Capitol. And tempers were very high, and uh, one faction had literally stormed into the mansion wanting to take over. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a crazy night when you think of all of these people, basically middle-aged women, uh, (laughs) and uh, it's, it's kind of an unusual situation high tempers and frustration on both sides. Uh, So it was quite a memorable night at the Sewell Belmont House. But I can imagine Mary Owens in the middle of this trying to calm things down. I think the story of Mary Owens, like I said, it's so kind of just beautiful to hear about. So, Jonathan, you, you wrote this paper. You've got these examples of these women. Where are you headed next? What more is there to learn for you on this question? Uh, as soon as possible, I'm headed to the Schlesinger Library in Cambridge, Massachusetts, because they have extensive papers that relates to this subject. So a lot of the work that I did that contributed to this paper and, and has contributed to my other articles has been in other archives, like the Schlesinger Library. And the Schlesinger Library is a library at Harvard Radcliffe Institute that is dedicated to women's history. So they have really profound and significant collections. They have the Alice Paul papers there. Within the Alice Paul papers are papers related to Helen Paul. Mm. Um, So a lot that I've discovered about her and her relationship with her sister and with Christian science are to be found there. They have papers related to the woman Mary Burt Messer that you mentioned that I I wrote the chapter about Alma Lutz, who was a um, very significant person in the National Women's Party, but also a Christian science practitioner in the 1920s. But it's also so important to acknowledge the relationship of the Mary Bickerty Library to Schlesinger for a project like this, for a paper like this, because, you know, every time I discover something at Schlesinger or an oral history or something of that nature, I can then come back to the Mary Bickerty Library and corroborate what is being stated in these papers. So if Alice Paul is saying Sarah Bell was a very, very, very devout Christian Zionist, I can come back to the Mary Baker Eddy Library and find out exactly when she became a member, other details, and, and corroborate what Alice Paul is, is saying. But that interaction between these different archives is so fundamental you know, to what I can feel confident about relating in these papers well, I will say, after reading Jonathan's paper and talking with him and looking at the oral history and the comments about Christian science that I hadn't really noticed myself, I really am convinced by Jonathan's research that there's a lot more to the connection between Alice Paul, the National Women's Party, and Christian science. So, Jonathan, I hope you will be continuing your research into the connections. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been a wonderful way to start by having this conversation with you both. So thank you very much, Jill, Dr. Zahnheiser, for being with us today, having this conversation and giving us this deeper context about Alice Paul and her life. Well, it's always fun to participate in something where I'm learning too. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I'm so glad. Yes. And Jonathan, thank you for being a guest today and and just being willing to share what you've learned. 
Yeah, well, thank you for being such a wonderful host. And Jill, it was really a great honor and pleasure to have you on Seekers and Scholars. So happy you could join us for this. And your book is fabulous. Oh, thanks for asking me. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on Christian Scientist Women and Alice Paul's Campaign for Women's Rights. In addition to having our two wonderful guests, we were so pleased to be able to include some audio clips from the oral history with Alice Paul conducted by Amelia Fry. These interviews are available from the Oral History Center at the University of California in Berkeley, and they're titled Conversations with Alice Paul, Women's Suffrage, and the Equal Rights Amendment, with the call number BANCMSS76-177. If you haven't already, check out our Women of History article series on mbelibrary.org on untold stories of women with many different connections to Christian science. The latest entry is on the innovator, entrepreneur, and philanthropist Betty Nesmith Graham, the inventor of liquid paper, which revolutionized typing documents in the latter part of the 20th century. Our upcoming episodes of Seekers and Scholars include a conversation on Betty Graham's story, as well as discussion of Christian science and investigations into spirituality and healing in 20th century Great Britain, and exploration into the marriages of Mary Baker Eddy through findings in the library's collections. I'm Krista Side-Graham, and thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.